There are a number of times during our year where we pay homage to those who have gone before us and celebrate their memorial. On the Sunday preceding July 4th, we remember those who have served country and fallen in that task. And on Memorial Sunday, we remember those and celebrate those who have lived before us here in our congregation, who have been those who have walked these halls, who have worshipped and sung among, among us, who have led our Sunday schools, our committees, uh, and who have had these profound faiths in Jesus that we could look to. This morning, as we turn our attention, and you may want to find that uh, parchment-colored sheet in your bulletin, uh, you will see that we have begun, and we invite you in the years to come to participate in a new tradition. Here to uh, my left, you can see a number of memorial candles that are burning. Those, of course, are in memory of beloved ones of you and of us that have passed, not necessarily this year, uh, but uh, before today at some time. And there are people that are precious in our hearts, and there are many others, and I invite you, if you have a memorial candle next year, to bring it, because we never forget those who have walked these halls, who have been part of this church. And so it is important for us to remember specifically them on uh, certain dates. And I encourage you, uh, as the service concludes, maybe to come up here and look and see that you've got uh, a second-grade Sunday school teacher or a former chair of the administrative board or someone that you were in circle with uh, commemorated here. A second important function of our memorial service is to remind ourselves of those who have added themselves to the company of heaven. And so I will read each name aloud. The chime will sound commemorating them, and a votive candle will be lit uh, by one of our memorial committee members uh, on uh, our altar. Uh, Let us remember those who have been added to the company of heaven this year. Marilyn French. Marie Karstner, Lee Burns, Arletta Edmondson, Marge Reynolds, Donna Jordan, Gail Batchelor, Lucille Hogenberry, Vi Bray. Delbert Miller, Jim Cunningham, Ruth Smith, George Klingler. Larry Larson,
Pete Myers. Carolyn Bice. Larry Martin. Let your memories of the saints be forever blessed. The church, of course, is often uh, blessed by gifts given in the name of those who have passed before us, and it's important for us to acknowledge and dedicate those uh, memorials. So during this year, uh, let me share with you the memorial gifts that we have received. We acknowledge memorial donations received this year in the name of Marjorie Reynolds, Marilyn Weber, Richard Ferris, Paul Pate Sr., Eileen Wood, Arletta Edmondson, Dolores Norville, Jim Cunningham, Don Routson, Joan Ratloff, and Larry Martin. I'd ask that you uh, cast your eyes upon that. I'm going to call upon uh, Julie Bliss, one of our memorial uh, committee members, and Julie Baer, uh, representative of the trustees, to come forward for this dedication. We present these gifts to be consecrated to the glory of the Almighty God for service in this church in loving memory of, to the FUNC Foundation, Phil Moorhead, Joan Radloff, to the FUMC Foundation Campership Endowment, Don Ralston, for Camperships, Richard Ferris, for Education Room Furnishings, Hal Haynes, Merle Sparenborg, Betty Stevenson, Bill Armstrong, Kevin Hyduck, Ernie Stephens, Jane Michaels, Bill Bauer, Alberta Potter, Jerry LaFrance, Inez Schlegel, Norba Jean Cole, Ken Norville. To Christian Education, Rita Copen, and to the Building Fund, Eileen Wood. We accept these gifts as a sacred trust and will guard and use them reverently in the memory of these beloved friends and members of our church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we consecrate these memorial gifts to the glory of God and in memory of Phil Moorhead, Joan Ratloff, Don Routson, Richard Ferris, Eileen Wood, Rita Keppen, Hal Haynes, Merle Sparenborg, Betty Stevenson, Bill Armstrong, Kevin Hyduck, Ernie Steffens, Jane Michaels, Bill Bauer, Alberta Potter, Jerry LaFrance, Inez Schlegel, Norma Jean Cole, and Ken Norville. The memory of the righteous is forever blessed. Let us pray. Most loving God, without you, no words or works of ours have any meaning. Accept the gifts of our hands as symbols of our devotion. Grant us your blessing as we have consecrated these gifts to your glory, that they may be an enduring witness before all your people, and that our lives may be consecrated in your service through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The balance of our worship this morning will be spent on the word and the proclamation of it by our pastor Keith and, of course, the giving of our tithes and offerings. We have been working our way through the book of Philippians, and we have come now to Philippians 4, uh, uh, verses 10 through 13. I'd ask that you uh, put your eyes on it and the Bibles in your hands or on the words in the screen and put your hearts all the way onto it because I know our pastor 
is going to lead us well today. The words of our God as written by the pen of the Apostle Paul. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. These are the words of our God today. Let us pray for their interpretation and for the interpreter. Will you join me? Lord our God, we ask that as Pastor Keith comes to stand before us, that he first stands before you today. We know, Lord, that all this that is to be about to be said has been prepared in prayer and bathed in your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, Lord, that he come forward and with the force that you would have him speak and with the boldness that you would have him proclaim that he articulates your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. <clears throat> well, today we get to talk about a verse that I would suspect most of you are pretty familiar with. This is what I like to call, you know, like one of those plaque material verses, Philippians 4.13. This one's been made famous, of course, by, you know, everybody from Tim Tebow to, you know, I don't know, whoever else is going to win a Super Bowl or try to or whatever. We love this Philippians 4.13. I mean, it's, it's, I, I see it on bumper stickers. I see it on tattoos. I see it on motivational posters. Everywhere you go, we, we dig this whole idea of Jesus giving us strength to do anything we want, right? Because that's what the Bible's all about, isn't it? The Bible is all about how God has come to make you awesome and make everything you do a, a huge success. And, and, and God is here so that you can bench press 300 pounds or, or run a mile really, really fast or have an awesome car or win a state title because that's what God's all about, right? Some of you are going, wait, it's not? Well, maybe, I don't know. But you see, I think this morning as we dig into these verses, we'll, we'll talk about you know, why this is so popular amongst our cultures and really what it's, what it's really all about. You see, our... Our, our culture is kind of addicted to this idea that God's here for us and that God's desire is that we have everything that we want. And I'm here to tell you today that that's not at all the case most of the time, right? See, we have to look at this text and we have to understand where it's coming from and who wrote it and what the situation was and all of that. And we have to ask ourselves this question, you know, what does God exactly promise us here? What is the point? What is he trying to do when he tells us through his apostle Paul that through all things, uh, that, he, that we can do all things through him who gives us the strength? I mean, doesn't God care <clears throat> about every area of our life? Doesn't God always want us to be successful. I mean, the Bible's full of successful people, right? Certainly it is. There are, there are some successful people in the Bible. I think about, you know, uh, Samson, right? He had great strength. He was successful. I think about, about King David and, and his success and his son Solomon, who was of great wealth. And, and I think of other men, too, who, and women who were, were successful in the Scriptures. But one of the things that you see when the Scripture talks about people who were successful is this. 
Their success was never the point of the story. Their success was never the end goal for what God had in mind. In fact, their success was one of two things. It was either a tool or a vice. Something that they used for God to to bring God glory in this world or something that ultimately became their downfall. And for some of them, like the ones I just mentioned in many ways, it was both. It was both. So let's look at the truth about what this verse means from Paul's perspective. Now just be reminded that Paul is writing this text about being able to do all things through, through Christ who gives him strength, and he's locked in a prison cell. He's endured seasons of, of great difficulty as, as well as great success. He's gone through seasons of poverty as well as seasons of abundance. He's gone through, through times in his life where his ministry was, was exploding and great things were happening. And then he's also been chased out of town by people who wanted to kill him. So Paul indeed had a, a, a myriad of experiences, but this particular verse is written from a man who the world would look at and say, this person is not a success. This person does not have great strength. So who is Paul to tell us about being able to do all things? Well, Paul is a man who's discovered one important thing. He would call this one important thing the secret. And the secret is found in the word contentment. That's a great word, isn't it? Not really. Right? Whenever I hear the word contentment, it's usually because I'm not and someone's telling me I should be. Right? It's very ironic this week that I, that I preached through this text because Monday uh, afternoon I was sitting in the dealership uh, putting, put, uh, trading my old motorcycle in on a new motorcycle. And I remember having this conversation with my wife on the phone while I'm sitting there, you know, waiting for the numbers to come back and whether I should do this or not. And she's like, she's like well, why do you need another motorcycle? What's wrong with the one that you have? And I'm sitting here trying to craft my response because I knew I had to preach on this text this week. And I knew she was going to look at me and be like, you're such a hypocrite, right? If you're so content, then why do you have to do that? You know? And I had all these great reasons crafted, you know. Well, because this particular one is, is, is bigger than my other one, so it would be more safe on the road. I wouldn't get blown around by the wind, right? And, and it's faster so that when, when I'm being chased by zombies, I can get away, you know. <clears throat> And, and, and all sorts of fun. And she's just like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. So, you know, it's, it's something that I'm feeling right now. You know, what does it mean to be content? And do I have contentment? And what does it look like, right? I mean, contentment is something that we need if we're going to make it as Christians in this world. Because if we don't, all sorts of terrible things can happen. More, more on the motorcycle later. But I, I want to talk about this whole contentment thing for a minute. But before I do, I want you to, to, to listen to a sentence I'm going to say and, and really... Just drink it in for a second. And here's the sentence. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? I'm not saying, and the Bible is not saying, that you need to be poor to be a better Christian. I'm not saying, and the Bible's not saying, that you need to be, you know, a failure to be a better Christian. Or that you need to, to, to have nothing to be a better Christian. What the Bible is saying is that whether you're poor or whether you're rich is completely not the point. But us human beings tend to make it the point a lot, don't we? We tend to make that our principal focus. But what Paul is saying is that our contentment can't lie in those external things. Instead, it needs to lie through the power of Christ. And when we have Christ, then we can experience contentment. But what's so great about contentment anyway? Well, I've got four things I want to share with you about 
what's so great about contentment. And, and hopefully through these you'll, you'll understand. And, and, and really, I want you to, to consider whether you would consider yourself a contented person or not. But here, here's the first thing that, that contentment allows us to do. Number one, it allows your focus to be gospel-centered. It allows your focus to be on Jesus. Because here's the deal. When you're discontented, your focus is rarely on Jesus, is it? it it's, it's on everything else that you think that you want or that you think that you need that's going to make you happy. Now, it might be on Jesus if you think that Jesus is going to get you those things, right? But look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, all these things are the things of life, the, the food, the clothing, the things that we need, the things that we want, all those things in, in life. Jesus says there's nothing wrong with those things. And he's saying that, that those things will be added into your life, that you'll have what you need, but only if you seek Christ first, if you seek the kingdom first. Now, that's not meant to be taken as some sort of formula for you to get more stuff. Okay, so what the pastor's saying is if I pray more, I go to church more, then Jesus will give me all that stuff? No. What he's saying is that, look, make your first priority the things of God and the kingdom of God, and then you can experience contentment. And when you do, you can keep yourself focused on Christ. You can't do that if you're not content. Because instead of, of thinking about Jesus, you'll be thinking about, you know, all these other things in your life that you have to chase after. I don't know if, if you're like me, but when there's something that, that I'm like shopping for or looking for or thinking about, you know, it's, it's, it's on my mind a lot. I'm looking on the internet things. I'm looking at reviews. I'm test driving stuff. I'm going here, asking people about it, right? That takes my focus. But when I'm content with everything, my focus can be where it needs to be, which is on Jesus Christ. The second thing that's so great about contentment is that it preserves our gospel identity. Now, what is a gospel identity? Well, your identity basically is the way that you view yourself and the thing about your, your sense of self, who you are, and where you get that identity is, is very important. And, and, and Jesus speaks very boldly about having this sense of identity in, in Luke Chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Then he said to them, Watch out, <clears throat> be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. <clears throat> See, it's not about what you drive or what you wear or what kind of house you live in. <clears throat> That's not where you get your identity, but this is something that our generation struggles with a lot. <clears throat> you know, the, the generation that some of you are in, the previous generation, uh, you know, the older generation, you folks got your identity from the things that you produced, from the things that you made. When you, when you ask a, a person who's in a more senior generation, tell me about your life, who you are, they're going to be able to tell you what they produced with their hands or what they made, what they contributed. You know what, what the younger generation, my generation and younger generations define ourselves as? By what we consume by what we buy. And marketers know this and spend billions of dollars to convince us that if we buy their stuff, then we can have a better identity. And you know what I mean. Think about some of the advertisements that you see on television or in magazines. You know, I think about the, 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 the advertisement for Macintosh computers, of course. Now, I'm an Apple user, so I fall into this one probably. So, you know, you've got the one guy who said, people are shaking their heads over him. You've got the one guy who says, I'm a Mac, I'm a PC. You know, the one guy's the real hipster cool guy, and the other guy's kind of the nerdy guy. And, and, and it's like, well, if you just buy this computer, then nothing else about your life matters. You'll be cool, right, if you buy the right computer. 
And then, of course, you know, the classic one, which I, pr- I probably fell into last week at the dealership was, you know, Harley-Davidson motorcycles, right? You know, buy into this, this, this thing. If I just can buy this motorcycle, have that particular one, now all of a sudden I'm cool. I mean, it's amazing. Since I bought this, this Harley-Davidson the other day, I'm driving down the road. Everybody's waving at me now, right? All those big biker dudes, they all think I'm cool now because, because I have a bike that, that, they, that they like, right? So last week when I'm driving my little Kawasaki around, you know, they just drive right by. But now all of a sudden when I'm sputtering down the road, and it, it's really cool, by the way, they're, you know, they're like, hey, my, my father-in-law drives a big Harley-Davidson Road King. He, he loves it. And when he found out that I got this, this Harley-Davidson, he immediately boxed up a bunch of gear and shirts and logoed stuff and sent it in the mail. I'm still waiting for it to show up. Maybe next week I'll wear one. But, you know, I'm like, oh, that's cool. And my wife is like, you're not going to make me start wearing all that stuff, are you? You know? She's like, you know, you just bought a motorcycle. You didn't, like, become a different person. You know? But it's true. It's like we as, a, as, as, as human beings sometimes, that's where we get our identity from is our stuff. Do you ever do that? Do you ever judge people and their identities based on the things they have or what they look like or, or how much money they possess or where they live or what kind of car they drive or where they play golf? or where they eat dinner, or where they go on vacation. You know, it's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to think of yourself in terms of those things. It's easy to put on a nice, you know, a nice suit and look at yourself and go, yeah, I'm something cool, you know? It's easy to to drive around in a a, a car, you know, and and think if it's good that that you're great, or to drive around one that's not good and think, oh man, you know, I'm, I'm a slacker, or something like that. But, but when you're focused on Christ, when you have contentment, and that stuff isn't important to you, now all of a sudden, you recognize that your identity is found in Christ. Your identity is not based on any of those things. It's, it's based on who God says you are. It's based on what Christ has done for you. And, and the identity that God has given you is the, is the principal identity to your life. And being contented with, with your situation and with your stuff allows you to keep your focus and your identity on the gospel. The other thing that, that uh, contentment helps you with is, number three, is it protects you from unwise decisions. Anybody here ever make an unwise decision because you were discontented with something? Anybody ever do that? You want to come up here and tell us about it? Right? Oh, boy, I, I've done that, man, you know. I, I, I remember sitting in my, in my first home that I bought for $50,000, and it was worth every penny. Um, and, and a guy came into our house and convinced Estelle and I that we needed to spend, I think, around $20,000 on new windows, Right? You know, he showed up at the door with his, with his little deal and showed us how ours was, were terrible, his were awesome, and that we were losing all this money, you know, because of our bad... And, and we're ready to sign the papers, right? You know, luckily we'd, we'd, we got out of the deal, you know, when we realized what we had just done. I mean, I made some dumb decisions because I was discontented or trying to be something cool or whatever. When I was a junior in high school, getting ready to go to the junior prom, you know, I paid $20 for a pair of socks, all right? Yeah. <laughs> this, and this was like, you know... Like four years ago, okay? Now, my typical outfit when I was a junior in high school consisted of like ripped up jeans and like a heavy metal t-shirt, okay? I was not a person who put a high value on, you know, like expensive clothing, but I'm with my friend. He's like, oh, dude, we got to go to find you like a cool outfit. You know, you got to look cool. One of my preppy friends, you know, takes me to this expensive store in the mall and we're looking around. Oh, this tie is perfect. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, get those. Just get them, you know, the socks. I'm like, all right. Then I'm walking down the, the, after the mall. I'm like, I just spent 20 bucks on a pair of socks. I don't even like them. So I, I, I ran back and, and, and turned them back in and got the money, and I probably went and like bought a Metallica tape or something like that. I said tape, you know. 
you know, but I've done dumb things because of being discontented. You know, and I'm sure you have too. Look, look at what Paul writes to Timothy. Now, he's writing to a young man named Timothy here. And I think this is, this is so poignant what he says to him. And many of you will, will resonate with this. He says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. How many of us have invested foolishly or squandered things away because we've thought somehow we could, you know, make a quick buck or, or, or get a quick fix or something and, and we've made unwise decisions because we've been discontented. When you're content, when you truly are at peace and you recognize that, you're protected from so many pangs. I like that, the way that he puts that there. So many piercings of, 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 of harmful things. And lastly, <clears throat> what's so great about contentment is it protects your heart from anxiety. You know what it's like to be discontented when, when what you have isn't good enough and you always want more and someone else has better and you think that, that you'll be a better person or a more complete person if you just have this or can do that. Your, your heart is overwhelmed with anxiety. But, but, you know, the writer of Hebrews says that we are to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So how'd you do? How did you do on this little list? Do you feel these things? Do you feel like your, your identity is centered in Christ and that your focus is on the gospel and, and that you're, you're protected from unwise decisions and have a peaceful heart? You know, I know for myself, I, I struggle with this. So, so I'm, I'm excited to, to lean into this next little part about how to get content because, you know, it, it's not one of these things where you can just be told how to do it, right? It's something that you have to really like change about the inside of your heart. It's not just three quick steps to contentment. It's really a heart shift. It's something that God has to do inside you to change the way that you think about things, which remember, Philippians is a lot about that, changing how you think. So quickly, here, here's, how, here's how you get content, okay? Three little ways, okay? First one is this, and you're going to love this one. Embrace suffering as character building. Yeah, not a lot of fun, is it, right? I don't know if you're like me. I, I tend to avoid suffering. I usually don't go to it. Or, or become excited about it. But one of the things I'm learning as I'm, as I'm growing and as I'm experiencing more and more of the gospel is that I've seen people who've endured great suffering who have, and I know in my own life when I've endured great suffering, that there's in- intense character building that can take place when you, when you, rather than become bitter and angry at God about it, when you embrace it and recognize the good that can come from it. I mean, look at what, what Paul writes in Romans 5. He says this, Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not push us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we recognize that suffering isn't something that we run from. It's something that we allow God to work through us into. The second thing is this, and this goes, this is a, a way that we're supposed to, to deal with our life and faith, but we need to change our expectations. Change your expectations. And what I mean is this, 
Don't expect that Jesus is going to give you everything that you've always wanted and is going to take care of all your heart's desires and make you the best of the best of the best, the most successful, and everything's going to go great for you. That's not what the Bible says. I don't care what you saw the preacher say on TV. I don't care what his book says. That's not the point of the gospel. Change your expectations. Recognize that that's not what God has come to do. You see, this world will tell us that it's all about being strong, powerful, and on top of things. But look what Paul says in Corinthians. He says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, it's not about how awesome we are. It's about how weak we are and how awesome Jesus is. But our, our society, our culture, our leaning is, is inherently skewed toward this idea that we're supposed to raise up and become great. But God has said, humble yourself, and then he will exalt you. Delight in your weakness. It's, it's easy for me to, to try to find my strength and push into that and, and downplay my weakness. But I've felt more and more the sense of God in me that, no, I need to, I need to learn how to lead with my weakness. How to, how to let people see that more and more. How to show people the frailty and the weak parts of me, not just the strong parts of me. Because isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? He, he indeed showed us his strength, but incredibly on the cross, he allowed himself to be nailed to that, to that cross when he had every ability and power within his grasp to destroy those who were killing him. But he chose instead to lead with his weakness. And in his weakness was his strength. And thirdly, and this is the most important one, we could just stop with this, is we need to recognize how sufficient Jesus is. We need to recognize that in him we have everything. Now, Mike's going to preach on this text next week, but I'm just going to give you a little teaser on this one. In verse verse 19, chapter 4, Paul writes, And my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When when you recognize that you have everything in Jesus Christ, then the things that you don't have in this world really pale in their significance, don't they? When you recognize that the power of Christ is within you, that, that there's nothing that you lack, that you have all things good, and that God has promised to bestow all good things unto you, then you recognize that in Jesus there's nothing more that you need. I think it was Mike Ransom who said a couple weeks ago in a, in, a, in a moment where he was leading worship at 11 o'clock, it isn't until Jesus is all you have that you recognize that Jesus is all you need. You see, he is all that we need. He is all sufficient. There is nothing more than Christ. In the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, I think it was Solomon who wrote these words. He says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. You see, God has given us all this stuff that we could find satisfaction, but it's a gift from Him. He's the provider, and He's all-sufficient. Does God want you to be successful? Sure, I believe He does. Success brings glory to God when, when it's been gained honestly and, and we've been obedient to Christ. But we don't become more loved by God because we're more successful according to this world. And we must remember that when we receive the accolades from this world, or whether we don't, that that's really not the point. 
If we serve God, chances are the world is going to hate us for it. I know this is tough. I struggle with it. By, by nature, I'm a restless, anxious, perfectionist, workaholic who believes the lie that I tell myself that I'm, my biggest problem is I'm lazy. And, 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 and I think that if I work harder and do more, that God's going to love me more, you know? And, and, and I fall into that trap so easily to think I have to outdo this and I have to outdo that. But what I'm learning through the grace of God is that God's love for me is not dependent on any of those things. God's love isn't even dependent on how good this sermon is or on how, how large my ministry grows or how, how many people appreciate me or anything like that. The love that God has for me is dependent only on one thing, on the love of Christ that has been given to me. You see, and I need to be content with that. I can't look at my life situation and then decide whether God loves me. I only look to the cross, and then I know that God loves me. What about you? Have, have you attached something more than the cross of Christ to what it requires for you to become content in your life? Have you said to Jesus, well, great, I'm glad you died on a cross for me, but that's nice and all, but I need this, 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 and this. You see, Jesus has to be everything to us. Now, Paul wrote to the Philippians to thank them for their generosity. He didn't act like it was unappreciated. He appreciated all they had done and all that others had blessed him with. And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's nothing wrong with being successful or having plenty. It's just that those things can't define you. Because if you truly let it define you, then you can't appreciate it, right? You know, it's like air. I need air to, to, to live, but I don't appreciate it. Every time I take a breath, I don't go, oh, that was awesome. You know, it's just what I need. But if you took it away, I would be a disaster. You know, when I was, I was talking to my wife about that motorcycle this last week, she says, well, is, is that going to make you happy? And I said to her, I said, honey, no, it's not going to make me happy. I'm already happy because I'm married to you. <laughs> right, save that one, Ron, write that down. You know, and, and, and it's true. The truth is, that's why I can appreciate it. That's why I can enjoy it because I don't need it. It doesn't define me. You know, I think it's cool and everything and I enjoy it. But, but Christ is what defines me. What about you? It's okay to enjoy your success and your stuff and, and all that stuff, but it can't define you. It can't be the thing that you look to and ask yourself, does God love me? Only the cross can do that. Christ is what defines us and Christ alone. In him we find all things and the strength to do all things. Now recognize there's one quick thing, and I know we're running low on time here, so I'm going to say this fast. I say a lot of things fast. But here, here's the deal. The flip side to this is it's just as dangerous to become discontented with your lack of poverty as discontented with your lack of wealth. I, I know Christians who are so anxious and discontented because they don't think that they're poor enough. And they don't think that they're holy enough. So they're always trying to, you know, raise their, their level of holiness, not because of, of a desire to serve Christ, but as a desire to outdo other Christians and to show that they're more holy than other people. And I'm telling you, it's just as easy to slip into that religious trap, that prison of legalism and pride, as it is to, to, to be always wanting more. So guard your hearts from that, people. Guard your hearts. And, and remember, the key to all of this is not to focus on anything, when it, becomes to, when it comes to your human, under, your human experiences and your, your human circumstances, when it comes to your contentment. Focus only on Christ. 
Put all your focus on him. That's what we, what we endeavor to do here. That's why Mike and I preach the way that we do. That's why we bring the word of God before you and say, this is the focus. That's why we exalt the cross of Christ and not ourselves, because we want to put him first. And through that, we can find the strength to endure all things and to be content in all things. Let's pray together. Lord God, you have given us all things. Lord, as we come to the moment where we give our lives back to you and and we give our tithes and offerings back to you, Lord, I pray that we can do so with a heart of disattachment to this world and complete reliance and focus on you. May our identity come from you. May our focus be on you. And may you protect our hearts. Give us that strength in Jesus' name. Amen.